0: With all of that, why don't we get started in our service of looking at the Word together. So, we're going to look today at the final six verses of 1 Thessalonians. This is it in this letter. So, that'll be verses 23 through 28 of chapter 5. However, the primary focus of the message today will be verses 23 and 24. 23 and 24. Okay, so if you haven't already turned to that section of God's Word, I would invite you to do that. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles, you can turn to page 988, I do know the page number, (laughs) and that'll bring you to our text this morning. Okay, let me read it, and then we'll jump on into it. Sound good? Okay. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All right, so that's our text. That's the end of the letter. I'm going to work backwards through the passage, beginning with the final statement in verse 28. And just, again, to remind you, I I didn't want to just not say anything about these final verses. The primary focus, though, will be 23 and 24, But I'll address these final verses, as I said, working backwards, beginning with verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If that sounds familiar, it's because you've probably read other letters by Paul. It was common uh, for Paul to conclude his New Testament letters with this statement or some variation of it. For instance, in Colossians 4.18, the letter that my brother is preaching through, uh, once a month, he'll close that one out with grace be with you. A little bit shorter statement, but grace be with you. The word grace, as you uh, may know, could be defined as unmerited and undeserved favor and kindness. kindness. Unmerited and undeserved favor and kindness. So effectively, what Paul is saying is, may the unmerited and undeserved favor and kindness of the Lord be with you, as he closes out this letter. Just a beautiful, beautiful closing. One writer says, a concluding reference to grace was almost his signature. So central was it to his whole theology. And if you remember in the beginning of the letter, he begins by talking about grace, wishing grace upon them. Now, he ends in the same way. But the scholar points out that it's no empty conventional formula. It's not just the way he signs off on every letter with no meaning behind it, like sincerely, you know. In fact, you'll find in my emails maybe that I go out to the church, I typically write blessings, comma, Jeremy. You know, that's how I close my letter, blessings. Just so you know, I mean that every time. I mean it for all that it it is intended to mean, I don't just stick it there because I have nothing else to put there, and it sounds better than sincerely. But it's the same way with Paul. This is very significant to him, the grace of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that unmerited and undeserved favor, and he wishes it as a closing matter upon the church to really focus their mind, remind them of that grace, that they might experience more of that grace and enjoy uh, the sweetness of it. It is indeed the heart of the gospel and the heart of God, grace. So that's the closing, closing line, 27. And you can just look in your Bibles and follow along. I'm just working backwards. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Basically, I, I'm charging you. I am strongly urging you, and I'm doing it before the Lord. I, it's, it's pretty serious. It sounds pretty serious that you have this This letter read before all the brothers. It's it's a solemn charge, and it's unique. It's unique in the sense that it's not found in any other New Testament letter. This specific wording, this specific charge. So why is it here? Or we could say, why does it appear that Paul is concerned that this letter be heard by everyone in the church in Thessalonica? The answer is, we don't know. We don't know. There are a number of suggestions. I read about nine of them. I have no idea. I really don't. But if I had to guess among the suggestions that are, or at least the one that might be more plausible, it would be a matter of recalling the issues that Paul has addressed and the context and circumstances of this letter and why it was written, right? Paul was prematurely removed, had to leave the city. In other words, he planted the church, along with his missionary partners, he planted the church there, he preached the gospel, church was formed, people came to Christ, he was ministering to them, discipling them, helping them grow up in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but some people were upset that he was there, specifically a Jewish element who denied Christ or denied that Jesus was the Christ, they got a bunch of other folks together and basically got him thrown out of the city, and he wanted to stay longer, that was his desire, he also was unable to return. He wanted to come back. He wanted to follow up with them, which is the reason why he sent Timothy there to check up on them. He, has, he had a heart for them. He loved them. He was concerned about them. But as I told you, there was this thought that maybe some folks were there saying, Paul doesn't care about you. Look at him. He's in. He's out. He left you. He doesn't care about you, folks. So Paul, Paul goes through various details to make sure in this letter that he does love them. He does care about them. He's still thinking about them. This is why he sent Timothy. And it's possible, and this is one of the plot, uh, possible suggestions. One writer says, since the letter was a substitute, so now he, he's still not coming to them, he sends a letter concerning these matters that he wants them to know. It says, since the letter was a substitute for his personal presence, Paul was afraid that a feeling of disappointment at his absence, might cause the church to neglect the letter. In other words, what? A letter? Really? That's what he sent us? But he's not here. Oh, he's just going to write us a letter? It's possible. And so, but he wanted to make sure no one just kind of like blew it off, like, yeah, okay, or started to buy into the lies of those who were looking to undermine Paul and his partners and the gospel uh, by saying that, you know, his His desire for them was not sincere and that he didn't care about them. So listen, just make sure everyone reads this letter. I want them to know that I love them, I care about them, and there's specific things I'm addressing here for their good. So that could be why. All right? So he puts them under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. It became the practice of the church that when a letter would come from the apostle that they would read it to the entire church. But this is an early letter, And in the sense of early in the church, this formation of the church, and maybe even just establishing that practice. Make sure this is read to all. Okay? Ah, 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. With a holy kiss. We've addressed this before. In uh, Peter, I addressed it. Peter calls it a kiss of love. But the culture... Uh, a kiss in the culture at that time ancient culture and it still continues to this day in some cultures a kiss on the cheek was a common form of greeting among friends and family those who had relationship special relationship it was as common as uh, our our western culture of shaking hands as a form of greeting well that practice then be became employed by christians who were strangers as they came into the church, but it became their practice as a mutual expression of their brotherly love, a recognition of their familial love. They were one in Christ. They were a family. They were brothers and sisters, and so they would give each other this holy kiss, reflecting that reality—a kiss on the cheek. And so when Paul says, "Greet all, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss," it's in a sense, it's it's a real thing that took place, but it's in a it's in a way or a way of saying, "Give the church my love. Extend my love to them." My affection for them. It was a practical way of doing that and a cultural way that they uh, expressed that. All right, 25. (laughs) Again, these are just the closing uh, statements and I didn't want to create a whole sermon around them. I thought I would just make some comments concerning them because the real focus is 23 and 24 or the real meat is there uh, for these final statements. He just says, brothers, pray for us. Brothers, pray for us. You know, what I thought about this is that Paul is humble and wise. He is humble and wise. Paul understood the importance of prayer. Prayer is one of the means that God uses to accomplish his sovereign will and purpose on this earth. Right? So we are instructed to pray according to his will, and he fulfills those prayers. Paul didn't think he was too good for prayer. I got this. I can handle this. Think about all that Paul's doing. He's facing some real challenges in preaching the gospel into territories and places that are opposed to the gospel or pagan, let alone just living in this fallen world. But Paul doesn't, even though he is an apostle, an elevated status for sure, he recognizes his need for prayer. He's a humble man, and he's also wise in asking for it. And he, he doesn't just ask for himself, he asks for us, for his team, for his ministry partners, for his missionary Fellows, Silvanus and Timothy, from whom this letter is coming, brothers, pray for us. Closing thoughts. Now, with all that, we come to verse 24. This is the meat of the uh, section here. 24 and 23. And again, I'm working backwards. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You might notice that the title of the sermon today is what? He will do it. He will do it. I saw that. Yes. Maybe I can, that's right, he will do it. Maybe I can burn that into your minds. He will do it. As the ESV has it, he will surely do it. That's how the ESV translates it. But most, most translations, he will do it, or and he will do it. So the way I'm going to work through verses 24 and 23 is this way. I'm going to ask and answer a, a number of questions, really. And then I'll make some application along the way. What's the title, Sermon? He will do it. He will do it. He is described in verse 24. Well, first I want to ask the question, who is, who is he? Who is the he? I know, you, I, know you, I know you probably know the answer, but just... Amuse me for a moment, as if we don't. Let's just explore the text together to try to figure it out. And I have a point in doing this. Who is the he that will surely do it? That's what I want you to see here in this text. Yo, yeah, okay. He, don't answer yet. Don't answer yet. I like your enthusiasm, though. When we're just looking at the text, if we have to answer from the text, okay? Verse 24, he is described as being faithful right, this he, and the one who calls believers, because that's who the letter is being written to, believers, Christians, followers of Christ. This he is faithful, and he calls believers into salvation. Or as the New American Standard Bible puts that, faithful is he who calls you. But the he that will surely do it is not named in this verse, right? for his name we have to look at verse 23 Paul in his prayer and you can let your eyes glance at verse 23 Paul in his prayer there for the Thessalonians in verse 23 identifies the him that he refers to in verse 24 specifically as the God of peace the God of peace so that he is God he is God, right? You with me so far? Which you probably already understood. But I think it's worth noting that Paul chose to add of peace. Of peace. He could have just said God, but he didn't. He is is the God of peace who will surely do it. Peace here, the way I would explain this, I just think it's beautiful and it's worth noting. Peace here reflects its Old Testament usage, as one scholar points out, stressing the well-being that God provides his people. The well-being that God provides his people. When you think of well-being, you might think of words that would be used to define just the word English word well-being would be happy, healthy, secure, but a a total well-being of the human being. He is the God of peace. Peace here in this New Testament context, with that understanding, would represent all the elements then of gospel blessing. Gospel blessing that brings well-being. It is the blessing that comes specifically through having a saving relationship with Christ. This is the God that the readers know. He's the God of peace. They know his blessing that comes through their relationship with Jesus Christ. Beautiful blessing and the well-being as a result of that. So, as you'll see as we look at the prayer, certainly it is is what God will do that is a manifestation of, or reality of the fact that he is certainly the God of peace and brings well-being to his people. So, the God of peace, who is the faithful one, who calls believers into salvation, he will surely do it. Do what? That's the question. Do what? Well, he will do what Paul spoke of in verse 23. So now let's look at that in the detail of it. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept, or another way to translate it is preserved, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so what is the it that the God of peace will do? Well, first, well, first, we see that he will himself sanctify the Christian completely, okay? Little note, in the original Greek from which we translate into English, himself stands at the beginning of the sentence. So it's emphatic. The idea is it's designed to give force so the original word order is like this now may himself the god of peace sanctify you completely the idea is that he and he alone and no one else will be the one to sanctify you completely One writer says, only he can work the needed sanctification in them. All their own efforts would be utterly unveiling apart from the divine working, apart from God, apart from his sanctifying work. He must do it. He will do it. He will do it. God will sanctify the believer completely. Sanctify. What does that mean? Well, we've talked about this before. But the basic definition would be to make holy. Make holy. That is made to be made in character and conduct that which God desires wills his children, his people to be separated from sin and Christ-like in every way that a human being can be holy. Holy. The verb here, this is a little technical, but the verb here and the tense of the verb, as one writer points out, it's, it's expressing a, a prayer wish, one that is attainable for the future, one that will occur, will take place. And it's best understood to be talking about or speaking of a process of sanctification occurring during this present life and viewed here as consummated or brought to completion at the return of Christ, at the return of Christ. So while, while it's being viewed as a completed work, it includes the idea of a continual work up to that point of completion, sanctification, full ultimate sanctification, fully and completely holy fully and completely made in character and conduct that which God desires and wills his children and people to be. But it is a process leading up to this full completion. I hope that makes sense to you. Sanctify the believer. What will he do? Sanctify the believer. What will he do? Sanctify the believer. What? What? Completely, completely. Another translation says entirely. Another translation says through and through. Through and through. He will do it. The God of peace will do it. He will sanctify the believer through and through. The word is a compound adjective. That means two words put together. One word meaning whole or entire, and the other word meaning end whole or entire, and in. So the basic meaning then is wholly attaining the end or reaching the intended goal. As one scholar says, it has the force of no part being left unreached. No part of the believer being left unreached with the sanctifying work of God. Through and through. One writer says, Paul's prayer is that the divine sanctification, this work of setting us apart unto God, setting us apart from sin, making us like Christ. The divine sanctification may extend to every part of the Christian, leaving no area untouched by the pervasive power of divine holiness. That's our hope, beloved. Is something here that the scriptures say, God will do. He will do it. That's Paul's prayer, and Paul affirms that this prayer will occur. One writer, though, points out when we're thinking about that through and through, that it's tragically true that many are satisfied with a partial Christianity. Some parts of their life are still worldly. That is tragically true. Beloved, God's desire, God's goal, God's intent for you is to be sanctified through and through. No part left untouched. No part unholy. No part. No part of my life. No Closed rooms to God. No secret sin. All of you. Sanctified through and through. Your heart and your hands. Your mind and your body. All of you. Set apart from sin and unto God. Bearing the image of Christ through and through. That is God's will for you. He will achieve it. That is his will for you. People are always asking, what's the will of God for my life? This is his will for you. You would be wise to comply with it, with the God of peace's will for you, or the God of peace's will for you. Beloved, Paul's prayer expresses God's perfect will for his redeemed children, which is why he can say with certainty that it will happen. (laughs) He prays according to God's will. But be sure, and I thought it would be worth pointing this out, as other folks have who look at this passage just to address it, be sure that Paul is not saying, because he will do it, he will sanctify you through and through. Every part of you will be made holy. And again, we're looking at that when he comes again, you will be made perfectly holy, but there's a process leading up to that, but we're considering the completion of it. But Paul is not saying or implying by emphasizing that God will do it that the Christian just sit back and let it happen. To see or understand sanctification or this passage that way would require you to ignore the rest of the letter. (laughs) You know? So if we just take this passage and cut it away from the rest of the letter, then maybe you could walk away from that understanding. For that matter the rest of the New Testament, but certainly at least this letter, you would have to ignore it to think that that's how God accomplishes his purpose of fully and completely sanctifying us. We just sit back and let it happen. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, same letter. There Paul said, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, he's saying the same thing. I get it. But then the next thing he says is that you are to abstain from from immorality of a particular kind that I won't bring up today because of the audience. Abstain from a particular immorality or impurity. Abstain. That's something for you to do. So, this is my will for you now, in compliance with that will, and to accomplish that purpose, you must abstain from evil. You, Christian. Right? Sometimes that, you know, let go, let God, it's meant, it's meant in all kinds of different ways, but sometimes it's applied to the issue of sanctification. You just got to let go and let God, and He'll transform you and change you. That's not, that's not biblical sanctification. He transforms you, He changes you through His Word, through you coming under His Word, through, your, through the empowerment of the Spirit that dwells inside of you through your obedience to that word, through your compliance with it. So when God says, put this away, you put it away, and you're being sanctified. When God says, put this on, do this, and you do it, you're being sanctified. It is through those means that God sanctifies you. There is word, there is spirit, there is church, there is instruction, brothers and sisters, and exhortation, and even rebuke, all of it, and your compliance with it. Because if you're rebuked all day long, but you don't change, then... You're not being sanctified. Just remember, even in this chapter, remember all the things he's telling them. I mean, throughout the letter, exhortation after exhortation. Certainly, first part of the letter is his explanation for what's happened, what's going on, his love for them, so on and so forth. But then he begins to lay out a series of exhortations that they might be sanctified, that they might grow in holiness. Think about verses 14 through 18 of chapter 5. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These are the means that God uses, his word, and you coming under his word, to bring about the Christian's complete conformity to Christ. It's a process. It's working towards completion. He will do it. But he has means. And those means include your cooperation and obedience to his word and to his spirit. Which is why, you know, I believe God brings discipline, right? Because he will do it. He'll do it. He'll He'll get to it one way or another. Right? So if a child of God is being stubborn, God has means to deal with that as well. Why go through that? Why don't you just get on board with God? Honestly, you'll find things to go much better. Don't you have enough troubles already? You want to add that to the mix? This is God's will for you, and he will. He will do it. But why not be rejoicing in the doing of it instead of fighting it along the way? <laughs> One writer says, Paul never affirms, and by the way, when I say these things to you, I'm not thinking of any of you individually. I'm not. I'm just saying generally, you know, because this is who we are. We, and if we're being good now, we might have a season where we're not being so good. We're being stubborn, rebellious. That's who we are. Thank God he does it. Paul never affirms God's oversight in these matters, oversight in our sanctification, as an excuse for idleness, but as the reason for the convert to have confident hope. I think that's the key. I can have hope that he will do it. This is the other side of it. Not like, oh, I mean, if you're, if you're like, I don't want him to do it. That's, something's wrong there. Something's seriously wrong. You need to repent of that very bad thinking, and if you don't, that would make me nervous for your soul. Like, do you, you don't want at all what God wants? I get struggling. I get at times being rebellious, stiff-necked. I get that, but I don't want what he wants. Then that's weird. Cause It is, and that's the best I can say, and it may indicate the Spirit of God does not dwell in you. You are not born again. You do not have a new heart your affections have not been changed by the sovereign working of God in salvation. Right? But on the other side, you do what what he, you want what he wants because he has changed you and is changing you. You may not want it as much as you should, but you want it. You're wanting it more. You're desiring it. You're giving yourself to it. But it's a struggle still. Right? So this is encouragement. One writer points out, Paul is saying, I have simply... I have simply told you all of these things to do, but God alone has the power to make your efforts a success, and he will, and he will. See, that's, that's the other side of it. That's an encouraging then passage to me. He will do it. He's got this. As you give yourself to it, he's got this. As you give yourself to the means that he has given you to achieve this, he's got this. God will see to it, Christian, that you be made holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, H-O-L-Y. What a relief. What a hope, yeah? And why will God do this, question? Why? Why Why has he committed himself to this? Why will he do this, fully sanctify us? Well, Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, chose before the foundations of the world for salvation, he also predestined, predetermined, planned out, set in course, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He has determined that we are to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order to do that, we need to be sanctified and in entirety. Because Jesus was perfectly holy and is sinless and righteous. As it says in First Thess 4:7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. In holiness. Now Concerning what the God of peace, who is the faithful one who calls believers, will surely do, we also have the second request of Paul's prayer here. Let's look back at it now in verse 23. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept or preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is really the time frame for the entire prayer as it looks to completion of these events and this full, complete sanctification. So one writer points out concerning this two-part prayer, which is really really one prayer, he says this, that although on the surface one prayer is for their sanctification, as we just looked at, and the other for their preservation, there is really... No substantial difference between them. If, as seems probable, the second prayer should be paraphrased this way, be kept so as to be blameless. Be preserved so as to be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, the writer says, the emphasis in both prayers is on the thoroughness of God's sanctifying work setting us apart unto him, sinless, pure, and holy. Looking back at the text, he says, and really this is just an elaboration of the first prayer, and may your whole spirit and soul and body. So he says that God would sanctify you completely, all of you through and through. And here's another way of expanding upon that. And may your whole spirit and soul and body That is to say, that phrase, both the immaterial and material parts of you, or your whole person, all of you. Okay? That's what it that's how we should understand it. Now, I'm gonna say this, I'm gonna give just a few seconds to this. If you don't know this, you can look it up later, but there is a debate within Christianity among Christians. Some are what they would call themselves trichotomist. And others are dichotomist. And you're like, what? And just so you can be certain, both uh, are saved individuals and followers of Christ if they're trusting in Jesus. It doesn't, this does not determine where you are. But the idea is this. Uh, it's a debate, and it's, it's still going on, and really, honestly, there's no, it's hard to draw a conclusion. But trichotomists believe that man is made up of three parts, and this is one of the passages they use to justify or to defend that position. Three parts, that he is, she is spirit and soul and body. So spirit and soul then are distinct parts of the person. A dichotomist believes that the term spirit and soul, and they have their arguments for this as well, that you could look through the scriptures and see, are interchangeable terms. They're both referring to the same part or maybe aspects of the same part, maybe. And so humanity is made up of two parts, the immaterial, soul, spirit, and the material, body, a person. So that's a little bit different. And then there's some implications for both views. I just wanted to make you aware of it. I'm also not going to draw any conclusions, okay? Because that, this, he is not trying to, to argue for one position or another here. I, and so I, I, if we want to talk about in another setting and you want to research it more, and by the way, that book I showed you, that gigantic one about doctrine, they take a position and they explain both positions. Those are the kind of resources you should get and look into these things because they're not unimportant entirely, but concerning this passage, this is not Paul's point. He's not trying to teach a particular view on how many parts a human being is made up of, since it's very difficult for us to determine these things anyway, and the scriptures are not entirely clear on these matters, but that's not his point. His point is to say all of man, all of the person, both the material and the immaterial, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept or preserved. The idea, again, is the continuous preservation of the believer being contemplated as a single, complete act. All right? So he sees it on that day. It's, it's complete, but this preservation continued on, and it's come to consummation in being blameless there before the Lord, being kept and preserved blameless. Blameless, what's that word mean? Well, the quality of the desired preservation that God is working out is indicated here is the adverb blameless. So blameless. What, is that, what does that word mean? That there is no cause for disapproval. That's his prayer. That you be kept blameless. Who's going to be doing this keeping? God. That you be preserved blameless. That there'll be no cause for disapproval. It's a condition where no just cause for complaint can be raised. One scholar says, blameless is a concept descriptive of someone or someone, something or someone judged acceptable before God in sacrificial worship. Found acceptable, entirely acceptable to God. No just cause for disapproval. Completely sanctified. Thus, both clauses, both statements in this prayer for the Thessalonians asked that they might be fully sanctified people, entirely acceptable in the eyes of God at the day of judgment. 100% through and through, preserved along the way, blameless, holy, separated from sin, Christ-like. That's the prayer. That's the prayer that Paul prays for these young Christians in the Thessalonica church, and that is the prayer that he says God will fulfill. The God of peace, he, the faithful one who has called you, he will surely do it. One writer says, only through the Lord's power does the church exist, and only through his power can it endure and be acceptable to him at his return or his appearing. Only by His power, only by His power. This passage in First Thess it reminds me of some other verses that you might be familiar with in the New Testament. I thought I would bring them to your attention. First Corinthians one seven through nine. As you wait for the revealing of our, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote those words, and you'll hear the similar, familiar wording and statements and thoughts and ideas being communicated. How about Jude 24 and 25? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. How about this one? I know you know this one. Philippians 1.6. Also the Apostle Paul. And I am sure of this. That he who begin a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This good work is a sanctifying work. He will preserve you blameless until the end. He will completely and thoroughly make you like his son. Now back to the text, 1 Thess 5 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The God who calls a believer can be relied upon. He is faithful to complete what he began in calling the believer unto himself. He's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful to his purposes, his will, his promises, and he called you that you might be made To be like his son. Sinless. Righteous. Set apart unto God. Living for him. I have a few quotes for you as we close. As we just think about this passage. One writer says, It is profoundly satisfying to the believer that in the last resort, what matters is not his feeble hold on God, but God's strong grip on him. Another writer says this, having expressed his double prayer for the thorough sanctification of the Thessalonians, he feels the need, that is Paul, to remind both himself and them of the ground of his bold request. It is the call of God, which is a call to holiness and the faithfulness of God to his called people. God upholds those whom he calls and fulfills that which he has promised. We can rely on his steadfast love, which never fails, but endures forever. One more passage, a quote. The prayer concludes with a word of assurance in verse 24. He will do it. He will surely do it. The God who calls believers into his kingdom is a faithful God. He is not whimsical and arbitrary. He is a powerful God, capable of doing what he promises. God's calling through the gospel of his Son begins a good work that gives believers a future hope. That hope is as sure as the God who provides it. The faithful God does what he has promised to do for those whom he has called into the fellowship of his Son. For those who are in Christ, the future is secure. Yes, amen. So I find this to be an incredible encouragement at the end of this letter to these, certainly it was meant to be to these young Christians, but it is to me as well. And I hope it is to you as I, like you, still struggle Uh, with sin, my flesh, setbacks, right? Is this ever going to work out? It will work out, just as God has intended to and plans it to. He will do it. Stay the course, Christian. Trust in him and his word. Believe it to be true and good and right. Bring yourself under it. Obey it. He will do it. He will bring it to completion. He will bring you through. He will keep you to the utter end, blameless, that you might enter into his holy and righteous kingdom. Indeed, for those who are in Christ, their future is secure. Are you in Christ? That's a question. If you can answer yes to that, then you have incredible hope and you have a certain future and you should be encouraged to stay the course. But for those of you who are not sure, then your future is not secure. It's completely unstable. In fact, it's going to be detrimental. You have no real hope, but it doesn't have to remain that way. It doesn't have to remain that way. If you will give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, If you will trust in him as your savior, as your sin bearer, as the one who took your guilt upon himself, as the righteous one who transfers his righteousness to your account when you believe, making you acceptable to God, if you will look to him and believe in him as Lord, as master, as king, and therefore worthy of your life, worthy of your following of him, worthy of your obedience, if you will do that, if you will call upon his name, call upon him as who he really is and believe in what he has done, you will be saved. And God will save you to the uttermost. He will do it. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word. I thank you for this beautiful letter that you have seen fit to have included in what we call Holy Scripture. Your word to us written down. Father, I'm grateful for this letter and the the year basically we've spent in it, and I thank you for the concluding statements here. Father, we are commanded to do many things and to avoid other things, and you know our condition. We are weak, we struggle at times. Sometimes we do well, but we have issues. So it can be disheartening at times, but Father, we need not be disheartened. We need to have hope. We need to be encouraged because we know that you will complete the good work that you have started in us. We can look to you. We can trust in you. We can rejoice always. Even as we struggle through this world, we know in the end, in the end, we will be made just like our Savior. Oh, what a beautiful picture that is. What a beautiful picture that is. Sin will be completely, entirely removed from us. Father, I even just think about that hope. Just a time at some point in the future where I'll never have to deal with another lustful thought or an evil impulse or desire or that struggle will cease and I will be entirely free from the burden that sin continues to be even in a Christian's life. Oh, what a day. And Father, if I had to trust in myself to get there, that would be a scary proposition. But I don't have to trust in me nor should I But I can trust in you, and I should, because you are faithful. You are faithful, and you will do what you have set out to do in all who you have called unto yourself and through your Son to yourself. And in that, we have great hope. pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.